0: It's a summer evening in a motel suite in Lone Pine, California. Lone Pine is a tiny town way out in the desert. A couple dozen people are preparing programs, organizing souvenirs, and making food. Over the kitchenette, slices of canned meat sizzle on an electric grill.
1: Spam sushi,
0: if you must know. Good. Oh, good. Put it on the table near the end, I think. Spam sushi originated in Hawaii, but Japanese Americans on the mainland have adopted the treat as their own.
1: You start with hot rice and spam that's been uh, marinated in
0: teriyaki sauce. You put the seaweed down first, then you put the mold on top, rice in, and you put a couple pieces of Spam. And there you have it, Spam Sushi. It's a tradition for the people in this hotel room. They meet here every year because 10 miles up the road is the Manzanar National Historic Site. Manzanar was one of the incarceration camps where 120,000 Japanese Americans were imprisoned during World War II. Many of the people here are from Los Angeles, about 200 miles away. A lot of the folks originally imprisoned at the camp were from LA, and the people here this evening are organizing what's known as the annual Pilgrimage to Manzanar. It's tomorrow. Each year, thousands come to reflect on the incarceration and to honor those who have passed on.
1: I'm Patricia Sakamoto, but my name when I came here
0: would have been Patricia Morikawa. Pat Sakamoto was born at Manzanar, where her parents were incarcerated. But she never knew her father, and for a long time, she didn't know why.
1: Over the years, I I drilled my mother, and she said, there's nothing to remember, Pat. It
0: wasn't a good time. In 1943, Pat's parents were confronted with the government's loyalty questionnaire. It caused a split. The first question asked if the prisoner was willing to serve in the U.S. military. The second, if he or she would swear allegiance to the U.S. and forswear allegiance to the Japanese emperor. Pat's mom answered, yes, yes. Her father, no, no. Her dad got sent to Tule Lake with other suspected troublemakers. His parents, Pat's grandparents, were Issei. They were first generation Japanese immigrants. The law at that time barred them from becoming U.S. citizens. So they were
1: afraid, and they said, we need to go back to Japan. And because he was the eldest son, he had this responsibility to them as well.
0: And he chose his parents over my mother. Pat Sakamoto makes the annual pilgrimage to Manzanar to honor her mother.
1: My mother was able to survive those three and a half years here. And I I feel that I have to tell her story because I don't think anybody knows what it did to our family and how it tore families apart just like it's doing now with our uh, immigration. They're just tearing families apart.
0: From APM Reports and the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History, this is Order 9066. It's a podcast about the incarceration of Japanese Americans during World War II. I'm Pat Suzuki. This chapter is about how Japanese Americans used the promises of equality and justice in the Constitution to fight the government. They wanted fair treatment. And they wanted redress there were 10 incarceration camps at some locations today the only thing left is a historical marker or a couple of abandoned buildings but a few sites like mansnar offer visitors more. <laughs> Manzanar is now a National Historic Site. It sits on a remote patch of desert land. The Eastern Sierra Mountains loom over the camp. Manzanar has a handsome museum operated by the National Park Service. Visitors can tour barracks, a mess hall, and a latrine. There's also a cemetery where people who died in camp are buried. On a breezy afternoon in April, the pilgrimage is underway. More than a thousand people sit in folding chairs or stand amid the rock and sagebrush. Pat Sakamoto climbs stairs to a makeshift stage next to the cemetery. She's the MC this year.
1: And I would like to welcome you all of you here for making this long trip to honor all who survived life behind barbed wire. Yoda, Yoda.
0: Traditional Japanese drum group from UCLA thunders open the ceremonies. Marchers carry banners from each of the incarceration camps. There are speeches and music and an interfaith worship service by Buddhist, Christian, and Shinto ministers. <laughs> Hank Umemoto was 13 years old when he and his family were imprisoned at Manzanar. Umemoto remembers the prejudice against Japanese Americans when he was a boy. We were not Americans. We were Jacks. You don't belong here. And that was the worst part of all. There are annual pilgrimages at several other incarceration camps. The second and third generation of Japanese Americans, known as the Nisei and Sansei, have been principal organizers. And in the early years, these get-togethers played a key role in building a movement for reparations. It was a place where activists could talk strategy and recruit support. And years later, they would demand compensation and a government apology for the suffering of former prisoners. government actually offered reparations in 1948, but it wasn't much. Congress passed a law that would offer limited compensation for the financial losses suffered by Japanese Americans. But the terms of the law were narrow. Many families actually paid more in legal fees than they got in compensation. But in the years after the war, there wasn't much of an appetite among the Japanese Americans to demand more. People concentrated on rebuilding their lives.
2: So what happens is Japanese Americans start getting celebrated as a model minority in the late 60s and early 70s.
0: Historian Alice Yang has written extensively about the incarceration and its aftermath.
2: The people advocating this argument state that Japanese Americans suffered. They were victims of racism. But look at how they've recovered. They have not joined militant radical protesters demonstrating in the streets against the government or against the military. They've been loyal, they've been patriotic, and as a result, they've been economically successful.
0: Yang says on college campuses, Japanese-American students were joining the civil rights and anti-war movements. They were signing up for classes in a new area of academic research. Asian American Studies.
2: And in some cases, some of these people, right, who heard their parents talk about camps didn't realize that they were barbed wire compounds until they read about it in college. They then start criticizing their parents, right? Why is it that you have not ever talked about this injustice? Why did you just go along with the government and go into these camps? And so they begin calling for Japanese Americans to talk about the history of the camps themselves.
0: At the time, Kathy Masaoka had graduated from college and was a community organizer in Los Angeles. One day, she heard a man give a talk about the camps. He was a Nisei, and he'd been incarcerated. I came
1: home, and I told my mother, and she said, oh, what is he talking about? You know, she was very, very uh, upset that he would be talking about something like that.
0: Masaoka says that her mother's family was very tough and stoical. Maybe a lot of other Japanese American families
1: might be like that, but her family was very much like that. So they didn't want to bring up anything negative from the past, don't whine about things, don't cry about it, move on.
0: And don't make a fuss about the prison camps. Again, historian Alice Yang.
2: Some people fear that if you raise this, you're going to incite a backlash. That anti-Japanese racism that victimized us during the war could rear its ugly head, right? And all the progress that we've made in terms of changing the image that people have of us, all of that goodwill will be endangered if you ask for redress.
0: There were divisions in the Japanese-American community over the idea.
3: I was among those who opposed the redress movement.
0: Bill Hosakawa had been the editor of the camp newspaper at Heart Mountain. He went on to a notable career as an author and a newspaper editor in Colorado.
3: And uh, I felt that uh, it cheapened our sacrifice to put out our hands and say, "Give us some money for what we went through." Cheapened the sacrifice. Cheapened the the. Uh, ordeal that we went through. I changed my mind when uh, they came up with the idea of the uh, Congressional Commission.
0: Japanese-American activists called for a Congressional Commission to investigate the incarceration and the damage it did.
3: Tens of thousands of them were sent to concentration camps, in the words of a commentator, on a record which wouldn't support a conviction for stealing a dog. He wasn't speaking about Stalin's Russia or Hitler's Germany but about the United States in the 20th century. Now, some 40 years after the fact, a federal commission is investigating that dark chapter in the nation's past to seek appropriate remedies.
0: It was called the Commission on Wartime Relocation and Internment of Civilians. The commission held 20 days of public hearings in 10 cities in 1981. Many Japanese-Americans who testified had never told their stories before, not even to their children.
3: We felt that somehow we were party to this act of defilement, that we had somehow helped to bring it on.
0: Activist Harry Kawahara testified at a commission hearing in Los Angeles.
3: We innocent victims felt guilt and shame about it all. And if you know anything about Japanese culture, you will know that guilt and shame has strong influences upon us.
0: One by one, people told their stories.
4: My dad was a successful businessman before the Depression. He farmed during the Depression. We were coming out of the Depression, and then he lost it all. He was at an age as many were, which was too late to start over again. And I know that he was very distressed For him, after the war, to go back and have to work as a dishwasher and as a janitor was very degrading, very demeaning. What I remember most was my father, who had just purchased a fortune tractor for about $750. Imagine his delight, after a lifetime of farming, with nothing but a horse, a plow, shovels, and his bare hands, to finally be able to use such a device. He finally had begun to achieve some success. Then came the notice, and his prize tractor was sold for immediately $75.
1: The evacuation of the Japanese people from the West Coast was a shameful act on the part of the United States of America. How a democratic country could have incarcerated their own citizens under the guise of a military necessity is highly questionable. It was unconstitutional and total racial discrimination.
0: More than 500 people testified about being incarcerated. Some older people spoke in Japanese and had an interpreter. One of the main group's recruiting witnesses was the National Coalition for Redress Reparations. Kathy Masaoka was an organizer for the group. She says the coalition was especially committed to making sure that a diversity of Japanese-American voices be heard, not just the leadership. The funny thing is, of course, people were hesitant to speak, as they had been hesitant to speak all these years. It took
1: a lot of work to get people to the point where they did testify at the commission hearings.
5: I was living in Los Angeles when the war broke out. When we were told that we had to leave for camp, we had things and they were destroyed. Everything was destroyed or lost during the evacuation.
1: I believe that the scars of evacuation that we bear are deep and very painful. Unless this great country of ours can acknowledge that grave injustices done to so many of us and make some form of reparation, they cannot be a healing of the invisible wounds that we bear so painfully. Thank you. Thank you very much. Once
0: you got them talking, you couldn't stop them. (laughs) Lillian Nakano was also an organizer for the coalition. Her family was held at the Jerome Incarceration Camp in Arkansas. All that anger came out, all that pent up anger. So it wasn't just the redress,
1: the reparations that we were fighting for, but it, it was just uh, satisfaction, I think, you know, of having a medium by which we can let the government know how we felt.
0: A couple of military officials from the war years testified against the idea of a government apology. And U.S. Senator S.I. Hayakawa, a Japanese American, spoke against monetary compensation at the hearing in Los Angeles. He was a conservative Republican. He objected to redress on ideological grounds. He viewed the payments as an extension of the welfare state, which he opposed. We also live in a time when American industry is seriously
1: threatened by Japanese competition in automobiles, steel, cameras, television, tape recorders, watches, everything else. I warn the Japanese Americans who demand almost $3 billion of financial redress for events of 39 years ago, from which nobody is suffering today, that their efforts can only result in a backlash against both Japanese Americans
0: and Japan. When Hayakawa finished, the audience responded. And Let us act accordingly. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. The senator's critics pointed out that Hayakawa was born in Canada, spent the war years in Chicago, and was never in danger of being sent to a prison camp. The next thread in our redress story brings us back to Aiko Herzig-Yoshinaga. We met her in earlier chapters of the podcast. Aiko was the young woman who traveled from Manzanar with her baby to be with her dying father at the Jerome prison camp in Arkansas. In the late 1970s, ICO moved to Washington, D.C. She was retired and had time on her hands. So, ICO decided to poke around in the National Archives to see if there were any records documenting her family's time in the camps. That set her on a fateful journey.
5: I was quite surprised at the amount of information that they had about me. But then when I think back, yes, when we went into camp, we filled out all kinds of forms. Mm-hmm. And so why shouldn't they have this? But I was surprised they kept it, you know? Little old inconsequential me, but they kept everybody's f- papers, school records, medical records, letters that went in and out of camp, they kept everything.
0: In this interview from the 1990s, Ico said one batch of records led to another. After months of research, Ico became something of an authority on documents related to the incarceration. Meanwhile, one of the Congressional Commission's jobs was to examine that history and answer a key question. Was the administration of President Franklin D. Roosevelt justified in removing all Japanese Americans from the West Coast. Aiko applied to be a researcher for the commission. She got the job. I was able to contribute about uh, six
5: to 8,000 documents that I had by that time collected.
0: One critical piece of evidence was a report given to the War Department back in 1943 about the removal of Japanese Americans from the West Coast. General John DeWitt was in charge of it. The report was long, a whole book, and it stirred up controversy within the Justice Department. DeWitt was head of the Western Defense Command. He argued forcefully for the exclusion of Japanese Americans from the West Coast. In a recent interview, Aiko Yoshinaga says that the DeWitt report claimed that untold numbers of Japanese Americans were prepared to help Japan invade the U.S. from the Pacific. That the Japanese were engaged in
5: ship-to-shore communications and other ways of uh, contacting the enemy. Uh, DeWitt, uh, in the report, blamed that the people who were living here on the coast
0: were responsible But other documents she found contradicted DeWitt's claims.
5: All the other correspondence that we found disproved that. FBI said, haven't found anything. The Federal Communications Commission said, there's no such proof of this, that, or the other. The
0: Japanese were not responsible for any of it. General DeWitt's report included overtly racist characterizations of Japanese Americans. In an earlier interview, Iko said that when Secretary of War John J. McCloy saw the report, he hit the roof. He
5: says there's
0: several things in here
5: that show what happened to the Japanese Americans was based on racism, bigotry. And we cannot have an official document with an approval of the War Department <laughs> stamp on it for public consumption that's full
0: of this kind of nonsense. The War Department ordered all 10 copies of the report to be destroyed, but only nine were accounted for. One went missing. Then a revised report was published. Decades later, Ico was sitting in an office at the National Archives one day, thumbing through a book when she had a surprise. So I recognized this as the 10th
5: copy that was missing And I told the archivist, I said, do you know what you have here?
0: (laughs) And he said, no. The DeWitt Report was powerful evidence that the removal of Japanese Americans was motivated by bigotry. In 1983, the Commission on Wartime Relocation and Internment of Civilians cited the document in its final report. The commission said that the incarceration of Japanese-Americans was not caused by military necessity. It was caused by race prejudice, war hysteria, and a failure of political leadership. And here's what it recommended, that the president issue an apology, that a foundation be established to educate the public about this history and that a payment of $20,000 should go to each surviving prisoner.
3: On this 200th birthday of the Constitution, the House today passed a measure to apologize for what House Speaker Jim Wright called perhaps the most egregious violation of our Constitution in the 20th century, end quote. The bill, which they call an apology, authorizes $1.2 billion in payments to Japanese Americans who were rounded up and sent to internment camps during World War II. The Senate is expected to approve a similar measure next week. The White House has indicated that President Reagan may veto it.
0: President Ronald Reagan ended up signing what became known as the Civil Liberties Act of 1988.
2: For many, the real legacy of redress is not the passage of redress legislation. It's the commitment to ensuring that people know about this history.
0: And historian Alice Yang notes that the Japanese-American civic groups that pushed for redress are still around. They've spoken out in defense of other minorities that have come under attack. That includes American Muslims since 9-11 and in the era of Donald Trump.
2: Civil rights are fragile. They require vigilance and activism.
0: The research that Aiko Herzig-Yoshinaga did at the National Archives played another important role in the story of Order 9066. While she was working her way through boxes of documents, she met a legal scholar named Peter Irons. He was using the same records to write a book about three legal cases that arose from the incarceration, cases that made it all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. Aiko and Peter decided to collaborate. Here's the backstory. When FDR signed Order 9066 in 1942, only a few Japanese-Americans challenged its constitutionality in court. Their fight would continue off and on for more than 40 years. One of the combatants was Fred Korematsu. He was 22 years old at the time of the Pearl Harbor attack. When his family reported to the assembly center, Fred didn't go. He was arrested a couple of months later. With a lawyer from the American Civil Liberties Union, Fred challenged the government's right to incarcerate him. He said he'd always been a patriotic American. In fact, even before Pearl Harbor, he wanted to serve his country.
4: I had tried unsuccessfully to join first the National Guard, and then the United States Coast Guard. My Caucasian friends, were accepted, but I was turned down.
0: Fred Korematsu felt betrayed by America.
4: When the exclusion order was posted on telephone polls in 1942, I felt angry and hurt and confused about my future. I could not understand how the United States government could do this to American citizens without a hearing or a trial.
0: Two other men also took the fight to court. In Portland, Oregon, A young lawyer named Minoru Yasui defied a military curfew imposed on Japanese-Americans. In Seattle, a Quaker pacifist named Gordon Hirabayashi did the same. Both cases went to the Supreme Court. Both men lost their appeals and spent time in prison. Almost four decades later, Peter Irons was looking through boxes
3: of Justice Department records. And when I opened up the first file and started looking through the manila folders in it, on the Korematsu case, I was absolutely astounded, I mean literally astounded. Irons found a memo. It
0: was from Justice Department lawyer Edward Ennis to Solicitor General Charles Fahey. It was about the DeWitt report that ICO had found at the archives a report full of lies. Ennis's memo said there was no evidence of espionage or sabotage by Japanese Americans, so there was no military reason for their imprisonment. And
3: Ennis was so concerned about this that he told Solicitor General Fahey, since these lies are being told about this racial minority, it's our obligation to tell the court that they're not true. Solicitor General Fahey simply ignored the warning and went before the Supreme Court and told them that he vouched for, as he put it, every word, every line, and every syllable in the Army's report, uh, which he knew for a fact was not true. In 1982, Irons recruited a team
0: of lawyers to get the convictions of Korematsu, Yasui, and Hirabayashi vacated in court. The first hearing was on the Korematsu case. The San Francisco courtroom was packed with Japanese-Americans. Many had been in the
3: camps. And the government lawyer said, Your Honor, um, the government will agree to vacate these convictions because these are 30-year-old misdemeanors and nobody really cares about them anymore. And there was a tremendous gasp of shock from the courtroom to say something that callous and that nobody cares about this anymore. When these people have been carrying the burden of being presumed disloyal or even treasonous all the time, Since World War II. Then Fred Korematsu addressed the court. He said, Your Honor, I remember 40 years ago being in this courtroom in handcuffs and being told I was an enemy of my own country. He said it was unfair then, and unless my record is cleared, this could happen to Americans of any race or any nationality uh, at any time in the future. The judge agreed.
0: She vacated the conviction and cleared Fred Korematsu's record. Later, the convictions against Gordon Hirabayashi and Minori Yasui were also tossed out. The Justice Department did not appeal the rulings. Irons actually hoped the government would appeal so that the cases could go to the U.S. Supreme Court. He didn't just want the criminal convictions thrown out. Irons wanted the high court to right a wrong it made 46 years earlier and overturn the decisions that had allowed the government to keep the Japanese-Americans
3: imprisoned. Because this was, as almost everyone concedes, one of the worst mistakes the government ever made. Um, and, of course, uh, when mistakes are made, the most important thing is to avoid making them again, to have people remember to educate future generations. This was a terrible thing that happened. The Supreme Court decision in the Korematsu
0: case has remained on the books since 1944, but the court recently condemned it without actually overturning it. In June of 2018, the court upheld President Donald Trump's ban on travelers from five majority Muslim countries. Justice Sonia Sotomayor wrote a blistering dissent. She said the court's travel ban decision used the same thinking as the Korematsu case. Chief Justice John Roberts disagreed. He said the two cases are different. In the majority opinion, Roberts called the decision in Korematsu gravely wrong. He said it has no place in law under the Constitution. But he said the travel ban isn't discriminatory because its goal is national security. Justice Sotomayor said you can't separate the two cases. She argued that the travel ban is discriminatory. She wrote, the court redeploys the same dangerous logic underlying Korematsu and merely replaces one gravely wrong decision with another. As we conclude this podcast series, here's one last story about Order 9066 and the U.S. Constitution. It's from Mitz Koshiyama. He was one of the men at Heart Mountain who resisted the military draft. Before the war, Mitz lived with his family on a strawberry farm in California. He got into trouble in the seventh grade. I would be called by the other kids, Jap. I, I resented it. so. Uh kind of fought with
4: them, you know. First thing I knew, I was called into the principal's office and I was sent to detention class.
0: Mitch spent a lot of time in detention for fighting. The teacher in detention made him study a subject. He said kids hated the Constitution. He didn't see the relevance, but the teacher kept at him.
4: Presidents come and go, teachers come and go, you know, governments come and go, but the Constitution We always there, she said, you better learn all about the Constitution because sooner or later it's going to help you.
0: And it did, eventually, and not because it kept him out of jail. When Mitz was drafted at the age of 18, he refused to serve. Mitz believed his rights as an American citizen were being violated.
4: After all, we were put into a concentration camp, denied our constitutional rights, than asked to fight for the very things that were denied us. And that we have uh, every right to protest.
0: At the time, many Japanese Americans in the camps wanted to prove their loyalty, their Americanness, by serving in the military or supporting those who did. The men who refused to serve were stigmatized by others in the community. Mitz was one of them, but that didn't matter.
4: My soul is clean because I really believed in the Constitution and uh, kind of pulled me through all these difficulties that I had during the war years. I'm not a prophet or anything, but uh, I know by, uh, let's say, common sense that sooner or later, after the war, that people are gonna realize that standing up for constitutional rights was the most important thing,
0: and it's proven to
4: be true.
0: Koshiyama served two years in a federal prison. After the war, he returned to California and started a cut flower business with his brother. He died in 2009. Please help us spread the word about this series by leaving a review wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Pat Suzuki. Order 9066 is produced by Kate Ellis and Stephen Smith and edited by Chris Julin. The theme music is by Genji Suraisi. The production team includes Nathan Toby, Alex Baumhart, Andy Cruz, Hannah Maruyama, and Emerald O'Brien. Mixing by Veronica Rodriguez. This podcast is a collaboration with the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History. The team there includes Jennifer Jones, Noriko Sanafuji, and Valeska Hilbig. Special thanks to Densho, the Japanese American Legacy Project. Their mission is to preserve the testimonies of Japanese Americans who were unjustly incarcerated during World War II. Many of the oral histories used in this series were provided by Densho. You can find much more about Order 9066 and its legacies at our website, apmreports.org. While you're there, you can see photos of objects listeners have sent in that show their connection to the incarceration. We have links to in-depth resources and to the Smithsonian's online exhibition, Writing a Wrong. That's apmreports.org. Support for Order 9066 comes from the Tarasaki Family Foundation, the Henry Luce Foundation,
1: the Wallace Alexander Gerbode Foundation, and Penelope Shala. This is APM, American Public Media.